Welcome to Uncertain Things. Today we have right now here in in the virtual studio Arash Azizi. Uh, Arash, I don't know if you know, I'm is Israeli. I'm, I'm a journalist with some background in history, and I've just consistently admired and respected your insight and perspective on the. Israeli-Palestinian conflict specifically, but the Middle East in general. That's very kind of you. Thank you. I, I don't think it's kind at all. I think it's it's uh, all attributable to your amazing work and your effort to remain consistent and sincere and intellectually honest about it, which is, again, remarkable. And that's not to say that we, we agree about everything. And I, I think we're going to explore some of those differences in, in this conversation, but many people are commenting on the current conflict w- who approach it with <sighs> what I would kindly call zero good faith and it matched only with a lot of intellectual dishonesty. So that's not the sort of conversation that we're having here. We're not here to have a, a, a debate of, of fake um, posturing, but rather I, I want to bring somebody who I so deeply respect and where we have some points of disagreement. So I might change my mind or evolve on, on, on those issues or at least better understand them. So that's the setup for this conversation. Well, of course, it would be great. Thank you. So just before we go into current events, can you give us a little bit of a background of your research and your work? You, were, you wrote about Soleimani and more recently you wrote sure. what Iranians want. So give, give us a bit of a background. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a historian of uh, 20th century leftist movements, broadly speaking. Um, you know, I'm interested in global history of, of, of communism and socialism. I'm from Iran originally, born and bred in Iran. So obviously I have a lot of interest in my, my home country and the politics of my country and our region. As for my books, my first book, uh, Shadow Commander uh, uh, Soleimani, U.S. and Iran's Global Ambitions. Um, really, it's a um, it's a book about Qasem Soleimani, this Iranian commander that that helped uh, spread the influence of the Islamic Republic over the region, and it fits with my interest uh, because you know I primarily looked at it as sort of a history of of ideas, even there, how was the Islamic Republic founded, how was it able to spread its ideas around around the region. Uh, and my second book, which will be published in a couple of uh, months, is What Iranians Want, uh, Woman by Freedom, which is an exploration of this revolutionary movement that we had in Iran in 2022, last year. Um, it sort of continued until this year, which was a movement, amazing movement, and tens of thousands of uh, Iranians led by women came out and uh, protested against the regime. So in the book, I really try to look at... Um, Really, a variety of Iranian civil movements, um, civil society movements that are uh, that were behind this uh, movement and that that led to this uh, woman life freedom moment in in 2022 and 2023. So, so l- let's talk a little bit about Iran again before we get to the current conflict. It's interesting that your focus is from the left revolutionary movement. So, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the impetus of the 78 revolution came from the left, right? Or am I wrong? No, no, of course. Yeah, of course. They, uh, the left had a very big role in um, in the victory of the Iran revolution in, in 79, um, although uh, left broadly speaking, um, although it wasn't the leading force in it, the leading force, uh, you know, was Ayatollah Khomeini, who, who was, of course, an Islamist. And it certainly wasn't the uh, it was very marginalized very quickly right after uh, right after the revolution. The revolution starts in 
a broad response, a broad public response to the uh, corruption of the Shah and and creates weird bedfellows between, I guess, the Marxist left and the religious theocratic Islamism of Khomeini. How, how does this play out? And at what point do we see the break? That's yeah, a great question. So, um, and I'll give you my answer. Um, you know, whenever I'm, I'm telling my students about this, I sort of make a disclaimer that that's my answer. It's a bit of an unorthodox answer in many ways. You know, the very field of Iranian studies for the last few decades has always been involved with this sort of question of what went wrong, you know, how did 79 happen? I look at it primarily in the context of, of what we now call global 60s. That's, you know, academic speak for this uh, decade of 1960s and 70s, you know, I personally call it the long 60s to sort of bring it up all the way to 79. The characteristic of this era everywhere in the world, right, in the United States, in Europe, uh, in Middle East, everywhere in the world, was really looking for radical uh, solutions. And radical not in the way that communist parties of the uh, of the past had been radical, but, uh, you know, of course, it was the age of counterculture and it was the age of sort of unusual uh, answers. It was it was really the age of challenging even the opposition parties, right? The understanding that we needed radically new answers, new spiritualities, um, uh, you know, was very common. That's why so many in California also started as sort of broadly leftist uh, and, and ended up in sort of Buddhist communes, right? So the way Khomeini is able to gain dominance um, over the Iranian movement I would say two things about it. So first, it has to do with this thing that, you know, it's very easy now to say, well, theocratic Islam Republic is such a terrible thing. How do people go for it? But at the time, you know, this idea that you can have an Islamic spiritual experiment sounds great to many people. I mean, Michel Foucault, of course, famously goes to Iran and absolutely loves it. Um, and when Iranian feminists tell him, look, uh, you know, this is probably not a... Uh, a great idea for Iranian woman. Foucault says, no, you don't understand it. You know, you're, you're just useless liberals. Um, and, you know, you don't understand isn't that, this. Isn't that, the essence, isn't that the essence of the relationship of the Orient and Western leftists, the Western post-liberals telling people in the Middle East, no, you don't get it. You're just tools of the liberal paradigm. Let us, let me tell you what will liberate you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I, I think it's very telling. And of course, you know, it's not just 79, but people today who sort of defend this stuff, I would say there's a very real danger in this country, in the United States. The left, broadly speaking, doesn't have real commitments to liberal democracy. I mean, I think it's very important. And really, you know, it doesn't understand it. And it's a sort of very strange thing to live through. You know, it understands it as if when democratic rights are under attack, the left usually starts to defend them, you know, on a one-on-one basis, right? Um, if somebody is arrested, you know, you know, we, we all get up in arms, but then it doesn't actually have a commitment to say, okay, you know, this as a whole, you know, this rule of law, this, this liberal democratic, you know, rights, they really matter. Um, and I think that's like, extremely dangerous. Yeah. I wanted to ask a clarifying question. You said there was like kind of, uh, a, a attraction to a new type of paradigm of spirituality or something that was very attractive. Can you just briefly explain what was, what was seductive about it? What was it exactly that was, was Ha- that had pull at that moment? There's something about um, Ayatollah Khomeini. Um, you know, he is a very high-ranking religious figure, of course. Um, he's an important uh, Shia Ayatollah. Um, he speaks very vaguely. 
um, even though if you listen very carefully um, and if you read everything he writes, which of course no one does, he has always been clear about what he wants. What he wanted, which is what he got, was a, you know, his idea of, of governance was most closely based on Plato's philosopher king. He basically believed a wise religious man, preferably himself, um, will be able to um, rule the country um, according to some sort of wisdom. I mean, he was anti-democratic really resolutely. In fact, the Islamic Republic, um, it's sort of a bit of a compromise. He didn't want a republic even, right? And it's not just, so it's not just a person of Khomeini, right? There is an entire now forgotten genre of what I call a term that I've sort of coined left Islamism, which, um, you know, which uses Islam and leftist language. Um, and, you know, this is not just three people in a bar, right? This includes its mass organizations. There's a thinker called Ali Shariati. Who is, um, who is Iranian, but he's based in Paris at some point. His shariati really wants to infuse Islam um, with a revolutionary message. He's very anti-clerical. Um, he wants to, um, you know, he, he wants to, as I said, he wants to make a political ideology out of Islam. And he's very popular. I mean, he has, you know, his cassette tapes in, in Iran are listened to by hundreds of thousands of people. Um, there's this organization called People's Majority Organization of Iran on the basis of Shariati's ideas. I don't mean not just Shariati, but some others, which becomes perhaps the largest political party in the Middle East at some point after the revolution. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of attempts there to fuse Islam um, with with revolutionary ideologies. And as I said, I think the reason this thing is very possible is that this is an era where everything is possible, right? But the last thing I would say in that regard, though, is that so this is the general picture, right? But the history will always works in this way. You know, the, 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 the scene is set by a variety of forces. And Khomeini is just a great politician. He's able to wield forces. But of course, there's a war with Iraq that really helps things. So he becomes this war leader. Um, and he is able to elect, bring people behind him and ultimately eliminate everybody else. Different political forces support Khomeini um, because they want different things from him. Um, and they also don't think that this sort of slightly strange, you know, 80-something-year-old mullah is actually able to outsmart them politically. That's the other. Mm. You know, they... He's underestimated. Definitely. Yeah, in, in a very, okay. very real way, he's underestimated. I think he's this old guy who will be a symbolic head of the revolution, and he comes to Iran. And of course, I mean, you have to remember, you know, no, no, at no point in history of Iran or anywhere else in the Middle East had mullahs run a government. The idea that a bunch of mullahs and um, sort of clerics would be able to run a government, be cabinet minister, president, um, build bureaucracies was just unbelievable. I mean, it, it wasn't something that um, they thought it was possible. So they support him. They think he will be some, you know, they compare him to Gandhi Right? They think he will be a Gandhi-like figure. He will sit in Qom, this city near Tehran, which is the religious heart, and he will, you know, he will publish some moral messages from time to time. Um, and it's these men in suits who will um, run the revolution. But of course, it doesn't quite uh, pan out like that. So how does it change? How, how does the political power shift so much that it becomes uh, probably one of the finest examples of total theocratic rule? Mm -hmm. So the founding ideas of the Islamic Republic becomes this idea that Khomeini had called Belat Tariq, or the guardianship of jurists, this is how it's often translated. As I said, this is an idea based on Plato's philosopher king. Uh, but, you know, 
underneath it all, it's it's an absolute rule um, for the leader, and this is a uh, this is passed in the constitution. So he is given the supreme leader or the guardianship of jurists. Um, but I would say yes, even though the constitution gives sweeping powers to this figure, um, because Khomeini had been very careful not to speak a lot about politics directly, like he would speak. Um, broadly against the Shah, but he never associated himself with a faction or a group, right? He, you know, he was really seen as this father of the nation figure. Of course, he was madly popular, right? Um, he was seen as having someone who had overthrown the Shah. He had led a revolution, right? But the different political groups in the country, I, I believe, yes, thought that they would be the one who would be running the actual show. And these different groups include, you know, liberals, include... Um, uh, sort of these left Islamists that I talked about include the Communist Party of Iran, the Tudor Party, which is a very strong political force. Um, and, and, you know, they have a series of big differences with each other and they're fighting each other. What are they fighting about? Um, first of all, you know, this is the problem of having a so-called Islamic Republic. What does it really mean for a republic to be Islamic? No one really knows. Would it be capitalist or would it be socialist? Um, what kind of socialist will it be? What will it be, most importantly, its international orientation? Uh, you know, is it going to continue to be pro-U.S. As, as Iran had been under the Shah, or will it be pro-Soviet Union, or will it be something else? Um, so as they are doing these fights with each other, a really ferocious a struggle happens between them, and Khomeini um, starts to have a force on his side that was had not been perhaps predicted, which is a bunch of sort of his clerical lieutenants, I would say. So these are sort of activist clerics, um, who are really able to come together. They found a new political party called the Islamic Republic Party. Um, and of course, they found this new military uh, militia called Islamic Revolution Guards Corps, IRGC. And they're really able to um, sideline everyone else. Um, there are very particular political events that make this happen. For example, the first prime minister after the revolution is a very uh, liberal guy, uh, Mehdi Bazargan. You know, he's, he's a liberal. He's been... Um, you know, liberal by the standards of the movement. He's, I would say, liberal, soft Islamist, right? He's the kind of guy, you know, he's kind of a physics teacher. Uh, he, you know, he's, he's not a rabble-rousing revolutionary by, by, by any standards. Um, and he's sidelined very quickly. So what happens in November of 1979, the, uh, there's an attack on the U.S. embassy in Iran and a political crisis opens, which leads to Bazargan's resignation and, and a bunch of other sort of contingent events like this um, that end in 19. 19- 81, I would say 1981. So it's after two years is when Khomeini is really able to consolidate his rule. Um, and this, um, you know, um, you could also look at it in this way. It, many different groups, I mean, they never kind of unite with each other against Khomeini. They're fighting each other on a variety of points. Um, the Communist Party to the party is the one that most resolutely supports Khomeini to the end. So that's until 83. Um, and and to the, by, by end, I mean, it's when Khomeini goes after them in 1983 and puts a lot of them in jail um, and executes them and all that. So when I say spirit to the 60s, I sort of put it in a very generic terms, spirituality and all that. But uh, you have to remember part of this was that all these groups were armed, right? They had traditions of armed struggle and guerrilla struggle. Um, they were against um, sort of patient politics. Um, they had agitated against it. So after the revolution, they continued to do armed activities and the People's Mujahideen Organization goes assassinating a lot of leaders of the Islamic Republic, for example, in 1980 and 1981. Um, so it's really sort of a violent time. And the Islamic Republic is able to um, really um, establish itself 
in the midst of this violence, again, uh, we have to also remember that Saddam Hussein, uh, the leader of Iraq, had attacked Iran in September 1980. So this all happens while the Islamic Republic also finds itself in a war with Iraq. Um, and there are also regional revolts all over Iran. Which is prime opportunity for consolidation of power domestically. Exactly. And it's a, it's a sort of a, uh, yeah, Khomeini calls it a heaven, a gift from heaven. <laughs> uh, you know, and he openly calls it that, right? And the war, he says, will become this, you know, the, it's this sort of revolutionary laboratory. And it goes on for eight years. Famously, of course, Khomeini says the path of Jerusalem goes through Karbala, which Karbala is a city in Iraq. The idea is that we take Iraq first and then, you know, we can go to Israel finally. Although actually Iran gets help from Israel, Islamic Republic of Iran gets help from Israel in the war in the 1980s, which is one of those more unexpected um, Middle Eastern sort of uh, terms of uh, power. Uh, but at any rate, yes, yeah, so the, the story of establishment of the regime, um, you know, is built, built, I think it's based on this broader uh, historical era, um, which allowed these extremities um, to be mainstream for this short period. And in a way, Iranians are victims of the the. the long-term fate based on what could have been a short-lived uh, political moment. Right. Um, you know, I mean, it, these groups they don't come to power. In a, this kind of 60s groups don't come to power in a lot of countries. Um, if they had, you know, they also presumably would have had um, uh, sort of radical fates. And, you know, examples like Cambodia and others, um, you can say they're, they're kind of similar. Um, you know, of, of these groups that come to power, Maoists come to power in Cambodia and really to these very radical societal experiments that in effect mean killing of, of, of millions of people. Yep, the, the extermination of political opposition and yes, and also dragging down the country into economic despair. So uh, I wonder how, at what point do you move to the US? How, how, how much of your life did you spend in Iran? And Because I'm interested in how, before we turn back to geopolitics and geostrategy. I wonder how your family was affected by all of this. Um, well, I came to the U.S. Um, I, I, I left Iran last time in 2008, so when I was 20, um, but I've lived in other countries. I've lived in Canada and, and Germany and, and United Kingdom and Malaysia and a couple of places, but I came to the United States in 2017 uh, to do my PhD, uh, which I finished a few months ago. So, uh, you know, that's that's, uh, <laughs> Thank you. So that's the end of that journey. Um, yeah, so, but that's, but, you know, I, uh, so I've, I've lived 20 years in Iran. That's in immigration. That's sort of a late cutoff date, which means that, you know, I'm very Iranian in this way. Um, but I'm also, I've, I've always remained in Iranian politics and uh, sort of Iranian media and Iranian world, if you will, even after. You can take the man out of the Middle East. You can't take the Middle East out of the man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. So I'm very much involved in Middle East and Politics and Iranian exile uh, politics, I guess. Growing up with, with your family, the, what's the what's the tone when you talk about politics? What's the what's the day to day? I know in Israeli society, you, you don't you don't have a single Friday night dinner where you don't get into <laughs> politics and hear the the general opinion and, and what the Israeli street thinks of this or that. How does it work in Iran? Yeah, no, I mean Iran is very political as well. Iran is very political. And, and you have to remember, Iran has seen a lot of, you know, large-scale political events just during my lifetime, right? So, you know, I was, when I was nine years old, President Khatami, this reformist guy, was elected as president in 1987. So that's, 
know, it was an opening of a big era of a lot of hopes for democratic change in Iran. Of course, it didn't quite pan out that way. 2009, we had a mass uprising, um, a green movement, a green revolution, as some called it. Um, then we had the whole nuclear negotiations and um, the Iran deal, which was aimed in 2015. Again, sort of a lot of hopes opened up in Iranian society. And then, of course, we've had rise of many other rounds of revolutionary movements in Iran against the government in, in 2017, in 2019, in 2020, and finally in 2022 and 2023. Um, so, uh, you know, with family and everybody else, what do you think about the sanctions imposed by the U.S.? What do you think about different political figures who, who attempt to lead this movement? What do you think about whether to vote or not vote in the elections? Well, these are always sort of contentious issues amongst Iranians. And That's actually an interesting question. The question of voting in the election. What's the, what's, what is your, where do you fall in this? When you know that the election is at least to a large extent rigged by the central figure who will get what he wants. The elections in 2009 were quite likely rigged, right? That's why we had the Green Movement. Right. But other elections from about, from 1997 to 2017, the elections were mostly, so parliamentary and, and presidential elections, were competitive. Mm. So what do I mean they were competitive? So they were, of course, they were not free and fair by any definition, right? They were very, very, very narrow. They very, were very, very... You were able to, to, to elect between, within a constrained option, pool. Yes. Right. Heavily constrained, like very, very heavily constrained. So for example, if you remember, I spoke about Bazargan, the first prime minister of the Islamic Republic. So he has a sort of a liberal Islamist party, um, you know, very mild opposition party. But I mean, that party could never dream of even running for um, for parliament, let alone um, uh, presidency. Although in the height of the sort of democratic opening in the, in the elections in 2000, um, it came close to running. And I think it was sort of allowed to run for Tehran City Council to just give you sort of an idea. But most of the time, the option is much, much, much more limited. But in 2021, finally, even that limited option was taken away. So, of course, I didn't vote in 2021, uh, but I did vote in 2017 because even though I didn't like the politics of any of these guys, there was a real option on the table. And I thought it was important to support President Rouhani because he was sort of doing this, uh, you know, because he had just inked the nuclear deal with the West and sort of I was supporting his direction there. Um, but, you know, uh, earlier in life, it's, I mean, the elections were, were as open, but I was more radical, I guess, so I didn't vote ever before that. 2017 is the only time that I did. Right now, I am, you know, I remain a Marxist, uh, but I am a very, uh, I'm a very participatory consequentialist. So I basically believe in voting in elections almost all the time. <laughs> a participatory Marxist. Yes, well, and, and well, I think participatory is important because uh, you know it should be obvious, but it's not because a lot of Marxists uh, prefer to just sort of don't do anything with the real world and um, you know don't participate when they don't have a you know I guess because if socialist revolution is not on the ballot, they will prefer to stay home, um, you know, and I, I so I don't think that's right. Um, and I said consequentially, so that part is important because uh, you know if you think voting in an election can make a difference and that difference is good. For what, right? For for me, you know, for the for the ideas that I care for. So that is the short term, medium term, and long term interests of the working people, broadly defined, um, you know, and 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 the country. Then I believe one has to vote, um, and peace, and you know, other sort of goals that we can define. Um, that's why, of course, I um, you know I think people should definitely vote in all democratic countries. Um, and unfortunately, not deciding not to usually. It's, 
disastrous, uh, you know, or deciding, or, you know, in case of Israel in, in last year elections, led to the victory of the right, effectively, by, yeah. by which I mean, you know, Meretz and Labour and then Balad and Hadash not, uh, not uniting. Yeah, so, that's what happened. But I think this was less about voting and more about government being run by children. They think there was right. a lot of churlishness and irresponsibility displayed on the leadership of the left that failed to unite, failed to operate as a block, and basically gave away to the okay. to the extremism that Netanyahu was willing to court. But we'll 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 put that aside because yeah. I still want to ask you a little bit more about, yeah. about Iran. I do, I do want to I do want to get an understanding too of the relationship between Iran and Israel. So I mean, yeah. t- thinking about today, what what is the party line on Israel? Like, what does the government profess as its relationship to Israel? And to the extent that it's possible to know, is it, to what extent is that in lockstep with what? the Iranian people feel around Israel or are there divisions within uh, within the, the citizens of, Is- of Iran around Israel? I'm curious if you have a sense of a read of if there's a division there or not. No, of course. Yeah, I think there's a very sharp division. So for Khamenei and the leadership of the regime, um, the leadership of Khamenei himself and the leadership of the IRGC, their line is that Israel should be destroyed. It's a cancerous colonialist imposition on the Middle East and they should be destroyed. Their official line is that there should be a referendum. Everybody votes to decide what kind of regime would be there. But of course, the referendum would be all Palestinian, Christian, Muslims, and Jews. But you know, they don't obviously mean vast majority of, of, of Israeli Jews who actually live there. Um, and at any rate, um, even though the referendum is something that they would say once in a while, they, they very openly threaten Israel with, with destruction. You know, that's, that's very clearly their, their line. Um, their line is that Israel, as I said, it's an imposition that needs to be destroyed. And that Iran has this duty as this Islamist power to play a leading role in, in destroying it. And of course, it's not just a theoretical line. Um, today, the Islamic Republic is the only state in the world that actually significantly fights against Israel. This is a basic fact that is often forgotten, right? Um, there's no other state in the world that fights against Israel. It's a very important fact, right? Like not a shot has been fired from Egypt, from Jordan, from Algeria, from Syria. You know, all these regimes have very, they give longer speeches against how much they hate Zionism. I mean, not, not all the countries I, I named, obviously, but, I, but, but, you know, Algeria does, Syria does, you know, Iraq often does. But none of them actually shires, fires a single shot against Israel. Iran is the only one that doing it. And all the other non-state groups in Iraq, in Yemen, in, in of course, Syria, and, of course, Lebanon and Palestine, including Hamas, the only country that gives them financial and weapon support is Iran. Now, of course, Hamas, for example, would also get financial support from Turkey and Qatar, but that's very much in coordination with Israel in one way or the other and aimed at sort of civic purposes, right? And just two, only- just two points to add for the context of this, the... The, the 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 rockets are being shot from Yemen, and sometimes uh, attacks being launched from Syria or from Lebanon are exclusively from Iranian-funded, if not Iranian-led uh, groups. So, in the case of of Syria, you'll have f- factions that are uh, more directly aligned with uh, Iran that will operate in this weird, chaotic vacuum that is Syria under Assad, 
And in the case of Lebanon, it is Hezbollah, which is a direct proxy of, of Iran. And in Yemen, more, more, most recently, it's the Houthis who are, again, the Iran-sponsored militia in that country that have declared war in Israel. So it is always Iran. In the case of Hamas, it's more interesting because Hamas takes inspiration from Iran and, in addition, obviously, takes um, missiles and, and funding, despite being on the opposite side of the uh, Sunni-Shiite divide. They are united by their commitment to this revolutionary Islamism and their fight against Israel. Yeah, so, so, you know, my first book is largely about that. So, Qasem Soleimani, what, what he did, what made him who he was, was that he was head of the Quds Force, or the Jerusalem Force, which is the external operations wings of the IRGC, whose job was basically um, coordinating all these forces that we just named. Um, and, you know, all of these forces are independent in, in a way that, um, by, by which I mean they have an independent political existence in their own countries, right? Hezbollah, obviously, has... Um, tens of thousands of supporters in, in Lebanon, uh, as do all these others. But what gives them arms and significant financial support that allows them to do, allows them to be something more than a non-state actor is Iran, right? That's the, that's the critical point here, right? Because non-state actors have a very limited power in the world unless they have a state backers, right? That's just part of the sort of reality. Um, because, you know, and the states usually, this is what, this is why I wrote the book, frankly, this is what makes it intellectually interesting because, you know, states usually don't like non-state actors getting too strong. They have a sort of agreement with each other. Um, even if the states are very much against each other, um, they usually end up uniting against non-state actors. And even Iran has done that at some points. Um, and there are other examples like Afghanistan, others we can look at. But in this point, in this case, Iran keeps doing. And the Sunni Shia divide, you know, so let me just say it here. You know, I don't think it's very important, right? Iran has given financial and arms support to Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, which is a Marxist-Leninist party in, um, in Palestine, right? It has given support to Assad government. Assad government is not Islamist. It's, it's, it's staunchly secular. Right. Um, it's like, it's now, tribal. Sure, it's, it's, yeah, of course, it's tribal. And so, you know, the Alawite um, ethnicity, which much of the leadership of the regime is from, it's a very small, it forms like 6 to 10% of society in, in, in Syria, um, and, you know, it's technically Shia, um, so that's why sort of a lot was made out of this, but it's really only technically Shia, right? And this was my argument always, and I think it's much easier to make now than it was a few years before when it was the height of sectarianism in the region. But the sort of Sunni Shia stuff is not what really matters. What really matters is Iran's and the Islamic Republic's revolutionary anti-Israel ideology. And to go back to what Vanessa said um, earlier and, and to respond there, so this is what the reg- Khamenei wants and this is what the regime wants. But not only this is in sharp contrast to what a lot of Iranian people want. Obviously, I don't have a polling agency, but, you know, based on what I see in Iranian society, and I've written about this in a lot of evidence in society, and also just talking to a variety of people that I know, not only it's in sharp contrast to what Iranians want, it's also in sharp contrast to, I would say, much of the sort of traditional political diplomatic class um, in Iran. Um, And the reason for that is simple. It's because it's a... It's a very stupid idea for for Iran to want it. You know, even if you believe Israel should be destroyed, let's say you totally believe Israel is a legitimate regime, it shouldn't be there, whatever, right? Um, the question that many ask, even openly, and I mean many even sort of public intellectuals in Iran openly, is that who who, who gave this task to Iran? You know, um, why should Iran 
sacrifice itself and give so much of its, you know, pay such a high cost in international isolation is endangering Iran's own um, national interest and for following this path. You know, why should they spend billions of dollars on these terrorist groups in Lebanon, in Palestine, in other places um, that don't align with the values of Iranian people as a whole um, and also don't, um, you know, don't advance Iranian interest in any way, right? So I think it's in sharp contrast to to a very large number of Iranians. Um, and I really believe actually it's possible um, that it will be shelved at some point, um, you know, after Khamenei is dead um, or, you know, after there are some changes because it's really a um, kind of a suicidal policy. And the interesting point about all of this is that, you know, it would be good if there's real polling to see the real mood Iranian society. But it's a fact that Iranians, but by and large, they don't have a very particular commitment to the Palestinian cause anymore. It's just a fact, whether we like it or not. Um, you know, we're not Arabs, so we're not committed to an Arab cause. Um, which, you know, in some, some Arab countries, that's different. And also, of course, they hate the fact that their government has um, basically suppressed them under the name of Palestine. Um, and has wasted their resources in the name of Palestine. So there's very little uh, support um, in Iranian society for this. And for the reasons of which that I explained, it has brought nothing good for Iranians, you know. Um, and they kind of also look at it sort of, you know, it, it's interesting. As I said, Syria under Assad, frontline state right next to Israel, has done nothing uh, against Israel. All these years, it came within... You know, very close to actually recognizing Israel in 2000 under Assad's father, you know, of his Assad, right? Um, even though anti-Zionism is central to it, even though it's a neighbor of Israel, even though part of Syrian territory is occupied by Israel, you know, they didn't do anything about this. The uh, Syria controlled Lebanon, as you know, occupied Lebanon until 2005. Um, you know, and before that, Israel had occupied part of Lebanon and, and Syria was occupying Lebanon. Even then, so the point is, um, why should Iranians spend all this time and energy and political and diplomatic and economic capital to do something that's not a core, it's, it's in, in no way in Iran's interest. Um, and if anything actually is in our interest, Iran in, as, a, as a unique country and civilization in this region should have good relations with everybody, which is what it did under the Shah um, before 1979, where we had excellent relations with with Arab countries and Israel, while Iran opposed the occupation of Palestinian territories, Shah very sternly opposed them, publicly opposed them, privately opposed them, um, and was, you know, very stern at Israelis when he needed to. Um, but he did not have a one-sided take or, or a destructive campaign against Israel. In fact, Shah often told Arabs that, look, you have to realize Israel is a fact of life. It's going to remain in this region. It's, you know, it's not going to go anywhere. Um, something that they, they come to realize in in, in late decades, but Shah already told them that it was in the 60s. Uh, even Iranian diplomatic political class. Like I believe if you poll the Iranian ambassadors today, today, the ambassadors of the Islamic Republic, if you polled them honestly, right, um, I don't think they'll be in favor of this policy that Iran has um, in regards to Israel. So I do want to get to the current conflict in the few minutes we have left. So to what's at hand? So we, I don't want to waste any time on the disclaimers because like I said at the beginning this is not it's not about like trying to catch somebody at you did not condemn this enough or you did not show so just 
can we can stipulate that, that Hamas committed an awful atrocity? This is da. We can stipulate that the occupation in in the West Bank and the Netanyahu government's policy of perpetuating the the conflict, managing the conflict, as the phrase is called, is has been. <laughs> At minimum, you could we can everybody can agree that has been has backfired tragically on, on the Israeli people. And I think and, and from my perspective personally, has been always morally reprehensible. We can stipulate that the tragedy of the Palestinian people in the West Bank and in Gaza is is an awfully complex situation that both Palestinian authorities and the Israeli government have been fully complicit in perpetuating, and that all of this is tragic and truly the only non-genocidal solution to this region is a, stu- a two-state solution that will have to require the sort of true leadership from both sides to figure to figure out how to overcome the extremists in their own house and and make the deal with some probably internationally guaranteed security so can can we mostly stipulate on all these pieces before we move forward Sure, yeah, I mean, I, I broadly agree. I mean, I would say that, um, you know, yes, I, I am, I am a tourist status in this way. Um, I, because I think it's a, it's a, you know, it's a much more plausible solution, which I actually think it's very plausible. I think it's possible to make that happen in a relatively short amount of time. And I think it's the preferred solution of everybody. Um, but of course, you know, if, you know, there is a scenario to imagine that you could also have uh, some sort of a one-state solution if everyone sort of wants to join the state. But I don't see it as a real right. uh, political possibility. Like if you think U.S. and Canada should join each other and become one country, um, which is fine, basically, right? It's you know, it's not a, it's definitely not a bad thing or a genocidal thing. But you know, to convince you know Americans and Canadians, right? Um, nobody in Palestine, I mean, no, no political force in Palestine or Israel wants a one-state uh, solution. That's a fact. Um, and, you know, um, very loud uh, people in Brooklyn, including Jewish Americans, uh, might want that. Uh, but it's a, I find it sort of a, sort of a bit ironic. This is the solution that we, we put forward that is not wanted by anyone actually in these places. Yeah. Um, you know, I find that sort of ironic. Yeah. I, I, yeah. By the way, I don't so, find it ironic at all. I just find it incredibly, incredibly dishonest and lazy, which I think is really what what's happening. And to go back to our previous point is symptomatic of Western commentariat and, and the left as much as the right, but the left conceives of itself as more worldly and intellectual than the right often does. And therefore, I will hold it to a higher standard and, and just point out that this is nothing but intellectual laziness, borderline cruelty in, in this dishonest school, actual arbitrary disregard to the reality of people in the region. And I mean, both Israelis and Palestinians. I mean, it's an imperialistic idea. You know, you see the problem with um, the problem with saying, you know, you know, we want the one state solution there, right? It's fine. The problem is that you think people's political identities is something that you can just sort of wish away. You know, you just say, oh, I think the just solution is that we move the borders into the same, we change your political identity. It's a silly thing to say. People's political, you know, and I think for Americans, it's hard to understand. It's because they're born in a very secure political identity, right? They're, they're Americans, they're citizens of this superpower, um, you know, their political identity is given. They can also burn the American flag and say, oh, we hate America, because it doesn't actually mean anything, right? Yeah, all of this um, is what I mean, I've been calling peace privilege. They, they, they suffer a severe case of peace privilege 
that makes them that allows them to entertain the most de facto imperialistic worldview. You know, you, let me tell you one funny example of this. You know, there's this letter in N plus one, you know, uh, about sort of defending an anti-Zionist position, and it's been written by a lot of uh, Jewish American artists, and you know, a lot of great things in this letter. Um, but there's a phrase, you know, which you know, I I totally understand, and I think there's a lot of bad faith accusations of anti-Semitism, which is especially painful against sort of, of course, Jewish people. So I totally understand all of that. There's a phrase there that is interesting for me. You know, they sort of say, we don't seek estatist solutions. You know, what does that even mean? You don't seek estatist solutions because you have a state that you're securing it. Is there any artist in this country who doesn't rely on a state funding for arts, for example? Um, you know, we, um, after all, this is what the neoliberal right wants. You know, they, you know, they, they don't like to say, we forgot, right? The whole point of the, the left is to support, um, society, um, which means in some sort of, um, you know, in some sort of a way includes a state unless you're not sort of anarchist, you know. So, you know, I, I think it's sort of symbolic of that, right? It's that it's very easy to, um, to say these things without, uh, without really acknowledging the reality of the world in which you live in, in which states exist, what kind of state you belong to is an important matter. Political identities really matter. Is not just a, you know, like I hear it very funny. People say, oh, well, one institution is great. Well, it's a joke way of looking at the world, right? For anybody, you know, forget all the weight of history, the history of Israel, its wars, the history of Jewish identity, the history of Zion, you know, anywhere in the world. You know, you want to change a, a border between New Jersey um, and Pennsylvania, I'm <laughs> sure you're going to have serious fights. Oh, my God. You know, but somehow you think you can uh, join uh, uh, Palestine and Israel and just right. like, oh, and, they and, become and, one And country. that's without without uh, the New Jersey charter saying uh, oh, <laughs> the, the trees and the stone will find the last Pennsylvanian for you to kill. <laughs> Um, I mean, but, you just the charter should say that. But. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been using your public platform to call for a ceasefire and trying to platform or signal boost the the best crowds or the best movements that have been joining this call. And I've... <laughs> To, like, I don't want to be cloying about this, but even in my situation as an Israeli, I, my heart truly breaks when I think of the, the casualties right now, the death of civilians on, in Gaza. It is, the numbers are horrendous. And I, 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 I hated the number games when, when pseudo-journalists were trying to talk about whether there were 32 babies or 49 babies or how many heads were severed. And I, I do not respect that kind of talk when we were when we were looking at civilian deaths on on the Gazan side and it doesn't you know those numbers don't even matter when it comes to like hundreds or thousands it is truly a human tragedy and Israel is probably already responsible for and if not yet will soon be some sort of war crimes because war crimes almost inevitably happen during war no matter if you trust the IDF to conduct itself carefully or not. It doesn't matter. War crimes will be committed. So again, I want to stipulate all that to ask you how do you get because you're, you're pragmatic in your thinking. How do you get Israel to truly 
accept a ceasefire at this moment short of the full dismantling of Hamas. And I don't know what you're... I shouldn't say full dismantling, but short of some significant harm to Hamas, if not, if not completely extinguishing its political power in Gaza. I mean, that's, you know, you, you, you put it there, right? The, the question is, what is the military goal of this operation, right? Um, I mean, you have Galant, the defense minister of Israel, a couple of days ago, said, he openly said, if we kill Yahya Simbar, you know, we can finish the operation sooner. That's an absolutely mad way of running a military operation. Number one, you, you named it, so... Um, you want to kill this one guy? Is it, so now he's definitely high... going to be right. He's going to be shipped to Qatar. And this is a, a high leader in Hamas, I assume. That's right. Yes, that's Hamas's main leader in Gaza. Right. Right. Um, and so and the person leader. behind the probably the the military uh, strategy of the October seventh attack. Yeah, and I mean, Mohammed Daif uh, is probably the person who sort of who operated it. Uh, but yes, Senbar would be the sort of political leader in in Gaza. Um, but at any rate, um, the reason, so why, why do I call for a ceasefire and, and how, you know, why do I think it would be also in Israeli interest? Um, first of all, because Israel currently uh, does not seem to have a, a workable military plan. And at the end of the day, the attack uh, of October 7th were, were horrendous and unprecedented. Um, they were a huge failing on part of Israel. 100%. Remember. 100%. Uh, you know, so uh, in terms of sort of intelligence and defense, um, it's one reason why Netanyahu is so now widely hated in Israel. I mean, all polls show and all reactions show. If you look, actually, it's kind of amazing if you look at it because even most right-wing people by this point, and I really mean most, you know, I'm not using it. No, no, that's not, that's not high in hyperbole. The, first of all, we, we know that all pollings that we've been seeing from Israel shows around 80% of Israelis across the board blame Netanyahu for the for the damage of the attack, and I'm certainly one of them. And you've seen at least one poll that if elections were uh, held today, his party would lose about half its mandates, which I think is not nearly enough to to reflect the the, the utter failure of his long-term and short-term policy. Exactly. So I think so I think it's a huge failing on and on, on part of, of Netanyahu and the government there. But yeah, so I think you know Israel, you know, the problem of Gaza is ultimately a political problem, right? Um what did Israel think it would happen, right? In keeping this territory in the siege like this, effectively working to strengthen Hamas, I mean that's again you have to remember Netanyahu's policy was to prop up Hamas, ignore the fact of all these links to Iran. Um, by prop up, of course, you know, I'm not posing some sort of a conspiracy uh, theory here. But the, right, fact right. Is, the idea, it is, it is right. overtly, the, it was overtly the, the strategy of the Netanyahu government to prop up Hamas in the sense of uh, counterweight to the Fatah party in the West Bank and basically create an equilibrium that in his mind kept Israel safe and stable without having to actually address the underlying, the, the, the fundamentals of the conflict. Exactly. So, so at the moment, look, at the moment, it has killed thousands of civilians in, in Gaza, of course. It has diplomatically isolated itself. Um, if you look at the, you know, if you look at the UN, if you look at reactions of a lot of countries, so look at the countries of the region, many of which have relations with Israel, many of which were ready to even expand relations uh, with Israel. Um, it's really put them in a hard place. 
Not to mention the threat of a broader, um, you know, war in the region. So nothing good comes out of continuation of this campaign. No, but but here, um, but here I need to stop you. So I might be wrong, but I doubt that maybe except for Algeria, any of the other partners of the Abraham Accord or the future partners like Saudi Arabia would care if this gets resolved within even a month. They they will they need to make the statements now. We know, of course, they they must. They need to take a stand against Israel. But with a political change in Israel, things could pick up in those relations. No, things could change for so, sure. No, 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 no. I'm saying that the alienation is not an indication in itself. But the thing that you need to weigh the question of a ceasefire against is, as far as I see it, ignoring the the notion of justice and and tro- and taking vengeance on. Hamas, because I think that's a confounding feature, although you might argue it's important, but put that aside. There are two things that you need to consider, right? One is Israel's deterrence. And Israel's deterrence, as you said yourself, partly due to Israel's own failure, if not largely due to Israel's own failure, but the fact is that Israel's deterrent power, which is the possibly the most important asset that he, it has cultivated over the past uh, 70 years um, in, in a very hostile neighborhood, as the phrase goes, is now completely destroyed. And without executing a long, concentrated war that actually leads to a tangible result, result that shows that you fucked with us, we fuck with you, and you will suffer the consequences. And the consequence is not being civilian death, because that, that, that uh, again, putting aside the, the absolute moral monstrosity of harming civilians, but it also doesn't really serve Israel's strategic purpose. However, getting the heads of Hamas leaders or, or um, dismantling the tunnel infrastructure, doing something that is tangibly harming the, uh, the power of Hamas in Gaza, Without doing that, Israel retreating or, uh, or agreeing to a ceasefire without that will put will just put a giant mark on the whole country for Iran to you know dial up the game next time around with Hezbollah because it shows that Israel is penetrable. The the seeming um, um, impregnability of its borders have has been disproven, and now and, and whenever it tries to retaliate, the world will rein it in. But to be honest, I, that's a calculus. That's that's number one. So if you want to answer that, and then I'll ask you about the the second problem. So I mean, I don't get this logic, frankly. I mean, because you know, Israel should be able to guard its borders. The fact that it wasn't in October <laughs> yeah. seven, you know, and, and frankly, it's embarrassing for a country with um, you know which gets billions of dollars of military help from the United States, uh, which has itself uh, it's a first world country in terms of richness. It has all this massive economic budget. It has a conscription service, has this massive army. It's embarrassing for it to need uh, operations to prove it has deterrence against a, a terror group um, that has to get its, uh, you know, rockets in indirect ways, you know, from from Iran, from other places, which has a which is blockaded on the other side by Egypt, right? It's frankly a little embarrassing for it. Uh, uh, I, need I, to- I agree with you completely that it's embarrassing, and I I, I think the one of the most important things that need to come out of this, and I I really worry that this will not happen, but it definitely needs to, is the public dragging, shaming, tarring and feathering, and if not, maybe putting to a tribunal of the current government of Israel for its failure. I think there are many other moral reasons to do that, but at minimum, 
because of its failure to leverage its enormous security machine to protect its civilians. I completely agree with you. But the point is, not that logically this is Israel's fault for not using all that. All that is true. But if you are... If, in order to solve the problem, to solve the equation, right, you need to take into account the interests of both play, players in this game. And from the Israeli perspective, there is no world in which getting into a ceasefire without any tangible results makes sense. Well, I think the most tangible result is to bring the hostages home. So the idea of ceasefire is that, of course, it would be with the release of all hostages, maybe perhaps with exchange with some Palestinian prisoners. Um, you know, that's the more important tangible result. I mean, Israel has given uh, a lot more before for, um, yeah, you know, for them. And also the most, more important... No, but, Arash, but about, about the give, Israel given more before, I, you know very well because you, you, I know how closely you're paying attention to this, but you know that the psyche in Israel has changed after this. So Israel was willing to release, despite a lot of public outcry, outcry by the way, in the past, more than a thousand prisoners in order to release uh, Gilad Shalit and has also agreed to equally disproportional trades, disproportional in terms of like just sheer numbers, um, to get the bodies of uh, dead soldiers that were kidnapped by Hezbollah. Israel is often, has been historically willing to make these grotesque deals, but you know that the logic is different. You know that Israel... Well, the logic it's is different, but look, they, different they, place they, now psychologically in terms of what they're all willing. And I guess this actually takes me to my second point, which I, I you might want to incorporate in your answers, which is the public in Israel is not going to trust a government that is unable to retaliate and reach results given the the atrocity that happened. Even though, as, as we both agree fully, the government itself is responsible for the 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 magnitude of the atrocity. But that the, the public is not going to accept a ceasefire a government that will sign a ceasefire without something that shows tangible harm to Hamas? Well, it's, you know, look, the, the and, you know, we keep talking about psychology, um, you know, um, the, the, the real question here, for all Israelis, whether it was in government or, you know, it's a small society relatively, so, you know, there's not a big difference between, um, you know, sort of Israeli people and, and, and you know, their government, which after all is elected, um, you know, by which I mean, it's, it's an important question for all of them. And and I think, by the way, I think, you know, this is where leadership matters, right? Because leaders are able, those who are able to take their people and their emotions and their feelings and their sort of psychologies to somewhere. The question is, um, what's the plan? I mean, even the way you're posing it, look at it, like about hurting Hamas. Hmm. Um, you know, frankly, what it's, it's not a high school fight. So you hurt Hamas, then what? You know, Israel has killed so much of its opponents and political leaders, often in extrajudicial ways, leaders of political and military leaders. And, of we're its talking opponents. historically. We're talking historically because Israel does has conducted operations of assassinate of assassinating Hamas leaders in the past. So it's not just in this um, during this. Yeah, that's period. what I mean. No, yeah, no, no, I mean, no, no, no I'm know, giving context to people who don't know the region. Yeah, exactly, and, and it's done for these decades, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas it's it's not going to bring it peace. It's not going to bring it. That, and you know, you think. You know, Khaled Mash'al the other day was in Al-Arabiya. You know, he said, you know, Palestinians are a martyred nation. This is one of the leaders of Hamas. Palestinians are a martyred nation. Millions of people died in the Vietnam War and the Second World War and we're, we're ready to give them all to fight. You know, so when we said deterrence, it's not like these people make, um, 
you know, that, those kind of calculations. They already right, know right, right. an agree, attack on yeah. Israel. They're not the ones who are doing the dying. Like, as much as Israel might find them and kill them here and there, but most of the time, you know, they can hide enough, right? Um, and if they die, some some other people will so will will carry on. Um, and the is, when they're in Doha, Israel is not going to bomb Doha. No, and, right. And, 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 by the way, totally, totally want to stre- draw a line under what you just said because I the problem of causing harm to Hamas and I is is exactly encapsulated by this point because of the death cult component of Hamas and of, of, of at least some factions within Hamas and their willingness to martyr their own people in the process. The question of... Yeah, so, so let me say so, so yeah. let me say something to that. So, yeah. you know, so, so here's a crazy idea. Maybe the goal shouldn't be just bringing harm on the group, but finding lasting solutions. After all, after the 73 Yom Kippur War, um, you know, which Israel was, I mean, of course, very different circumstances. You know, Egyptians are trying to get their own country. Um, yeah, but I mean, they committed a lot of atrocities. Yeah, no, but the 73 war with Egypt, the Yom Kippur war, right? The, the, the reason that led to peace was in part that the war was waged <laughs> in, in, in Sadat's mind, at least in part, as leverage for creating a new status quo he entertained the abil- uh, the possibility of peace. It was not he was he did not launch a genocidal war. He launched a war. Of course, but uh, I'm not saying Israel should make the, peace the with Hamas. Yeah, but I'm not saying Israel should make peace with Hamas, right? Of course, I don't think that's really possible. I don't think Hamas, as it exists today, certainly it's it's not a force that it can, you know, force that created those genocidal attacks on um, you know, on um, on October seventh. It really shows the sort of the extreme brutality. Um, if there was any, I mean. I would say it really shocked me just as a, as a personal um, sort of, you know, knowing all the Hamas brutalities is the Iranian regime's brutalities. It still shocked me. But I'm saying Israel needs to have a long-term political approach to this question. Um, and if you, uh, you know, if you just go into this, um, you know, by, well, you know, we need to solve immediate results. I mean, well, what, is, what is the immediate results? How much of Gaza um, are they going to kill? How much of Gaza are they going to destroy? This is this little strip. Nothing has been left of it. Lives of its people has been just war and destruction and blockade for as long as they remember. Half of it of our, our children. Um, you know, uh, you know, what's the end goal here? No, I Whereas there is an alternative. There is an alternative. Alternative is work with Arab countries, work with Saudi Arabia, work with the Palestinian Authority. Try to find a political solution. Give Gaza back to some sort of an Arab slash Palestinian authority force, um, and find a way out of this. That's what should. That's but, what but, should come, come, come uh, out. Of uh, it. For, but for context, this is what Israel is doing right now. There's talks with between the Israel's government and Jordan and 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 the UAE, and there's talks about creating some Arab coalition that will be responsible for Gaza. So when I'm talking about causing harm to Hamas. I don't think anybody in Israel, well, I shouldn't say anybody, we we have our own component of crazies who are um, usually overrepresented in the settler community, and but not exclusively, who are truly genocidal or truly um, destructive, right? So put, but so that component exists. That those are the people who vote for Ben Gvir, those are the people who vote for Smotrich, and and the harm of their political power over Israel is something that I talked about a lot if been and I like so I don't want to get into this right now because I th- I, I'm going to put that aside and thankfully 
they are not the reigning majority at this moment in Israel. They have they have overpower and specifically have been overrepresented in this current government because of Netanyahu's willingness to carve out a government with him with them, which is what I think the most repugnant thing in his uh, problematic to repugnant. Uh, reign in Israeli politics, but I don't want to focus on them because I think that the Israeli consensus politically isn't that we're going into a forever war in Gaza, nor is it that we are going to level Gaza completely and, and create a second Nakba. The point is that there needs to be some actual direct damage done to Hamas. Now you might argue that this damage has been done and there's nothing better that can be achieved with this, which actually I think is a really good argument that you are not going to get anything more at this point. But there's no, there's no dispute, I think, in Israel that there is there has to be a few, uh, Gaza for tomorrow. Again, except for the actual messianic genocidal part of government that thankfully are, are increasingly being ousted from, from public life. But we need to work with whoever is willing to basically create a buffer within Gaza and and allow for some political future in that little strip of land that is self-reliant and is able to work with Israel because there is nothing Israel wants more than to be able to just step back from Gaza and not have to worry about it. There is no desire on the Israeli side to control Gaza, there's no desire in Israel to inflict well, pain on Palestinians. Gaza comes with West Bank. You know, Gaza comes no, no. with West Bank. They, I so think it's so. It's a reality. No. Right. Yeah. So, no, so it's a reality. We shouldn't forget this, right? We shouldn't yeah. forget this. For a, for a more than a generation, Israelis, and this is Israeli people, it's not just some bad guys in the government. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of Israelis convince themselves that millions of people in the West Bank can live under occupation, can live under these terrible conditions longest occupation in the world, and this shouldn't even be an issue in Israel. It wasn't even an issue in elections, right? For, I want, for many I, years now. A rational, yeah. I, I want to agree with you completely, because I, th- yeah. I think what you're There's saying is... There's to this, though. I, we, to we're, we're in full agreement on this point. I just want to separate them for a second. I know I know that there is a part of which, which can't be separated and shouldn't be separated, but because we're talking about this war, I don't think that the question of ceasefire is directly tied to the West Bank. Now, the West Bank so and this is all, and this is all I'm going to say about this, and you can disagree with me because they, they are tethered in terms of Israel's uh, responsibility to resolve this. I don't think it is. I think because of the con- the conditions of October seventh, Israel needs to be in a state where the international community, if it wants ceasefire, needs to show up how it's going to evolve a plan that answers these concerns from the Israeli side for Gaza specifically, both on the humanitarian front. Um, to the towards Gaza, but also towards the security concerns and also the, the prevention of Hamas being able to amass power and basically take over whatever new political entity takes exists in Gaza. And without that, I don't see how Israel can just sit into a ceasefire. The, the international community that is talking, that is trying to pressure Israel into a ceasefire without addressing these concerns is not serious, in my view, is not actually serious about trying to prevent more harm to civilians. Look, I'll say this. We have to remember, you say international community pressuring Israel. Israel, like any other country in the world, doesn't have a right to kill civilians. It kills civilians in very large numbers. The reason international community pressures Israel, um, and in fact, international community does, doesn't really pressure Israel in the way that it could. The United States effectively gives a blank check to Israel to do whatever it wants. It has unbelievable support on all levels. No other country could imagine having this kind of support while committing this kind of military operations. In Europe, 
There's widespread support. There's effectively now suspension of, of democratic uh, uh, threats to suspend democratic liberties in Europe um, for for sort of anti-Israel demonstrations. Which is horrible so, and disgusting, and I'm, I agree with you completely. They're, they're, of course, yeah, but my point is, so, so you know, so this is the world Israel has at the moment, right? Um, and it has not, you know, it is not conducting this war in a way, and it's frankly, it's very, very hard to, you know, you earlier said every war will have war crimes, it's true, but, you know, um, conducting a war in a place as small as Gaza, um, you know, uh, even if it wants to all the time to avoid all, all civilian casualties, which I'm not convinced actually that's the case, but even if it wants to, um, it, it won't be able to. So Israelis, I mean, I would, I would end with saying this, right? The problem in politics in a lot of places in the world, and I think this is not limited to Israel, is that there is there's sort of a short-term views all the time. And Israel has done this throughout its history. Right, um, Hamas today exists for a large degree because of the decisions that that Israel has taken in the past. Right, from and I could go in a, in a very long time. Even let's say killing someone like Sheikh, you know, Islamic Republic is not really sectarian actually. In its, I mean, it's sort of murderous ideology, but it's not sort of Shia sectarian. But Hamas historically was right. How is it that it's able to become a force totally under the leadership of Iran? Well, you know killing of some of its sort of main, more traditional leaders at some point, um, closing off all other sort of political avenues in, in, in Palestine at the main point, um, and, and some other parts, these are all had roots. So my point is, short-term thinking, thinking of next week, next month, next year, is it's a dangerous thing and has happened a lot and happens in the region. I say, for the interest of Israel itself, for the interest of my Israeli friends, for the national interest of this small country in our region, which which faces tough times, it needs to adopt long-term thinking. And, you know, so it's not just a matter of ceasefire today or not. I believe the ceasefire is, is necessary, of course, and I sort of try to say why. But more importantly, it needs to adopt long-term thinking. Um, this living by the sword, living on war after war, living on the basis of sort of operation after operation, you know, it it is not sustainable in the long term, right? Um, and there is the good. What's the good news? And let us, you know, let us not forget that the good news is, with the exception of Iran, um, every other country in the region, none of them wants to fight Israel. They have all accepted that Israel is going to be there. They've all accepted that, you know, not all of them have established relations with it, but let us not forget, every single Arab country signed up to the Arab Peace Initiative in 2002. And in Iran, on a government, on the popular level, people don't want to fight Israel. Even on the on the political elite level, beyond Khamenei and this terrorist support, they don't want that. So Israel has that good hand. It can use it. It can use it to find itself a permanent peace um, in this region. And that's what it should seek towards, right? Every single day that it continues um, its operations, it will it will hurt its own political capitals. You know, killing hundreds of, of kids and people and civilians so that some fourth level Hamas political leader is also killed somewhere. Even if you just look at it from the perspective, interest of Israel, what it loses in moral support around the world and political support in the region around the world is much more, right? So that is. That is what I would say. Um, and, you know, Arab countries that we spoke about earlier, you know, these countries are not democracies, but they have populations. 
it the pop the space for the for these populations to also accept deals with Israel will shrink as much as this war continues. And it's been, let us not forget, already a month that it has gone on. Um it should end and Israel should work with the countries in the region for long-term solution for Gaza um and 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 for the um and for the other Palestinian territories. Uh, Arash, this is this is great. I know I know we've been keeping you longer, and I just want to add before you go because I cut you just as you were making the point about Israel uh, complacency regarding the West Bank. I want to make sure that this point doesn't get lost because I completely agree with this, and I think that one of the biggest problem of the past twenty years, basically since the Second Intifada, is that the idea of managing the conflict has gained too much traction. And the idea is that you can turn off your brain and not deal with it as long as the security, the border security is strong enough and you prevent the the excess of intifada-like attacks within Israel, then the occupation doesn't is not really happening. And, and the harm to Palestinians and the damage, psychological and human damage to the, the Palestinian street is, is, you know, ignorable and i think this is morally outrageous and and is and, and is also just undeniably short term thinking so i completely wanted to make sure that it didn't seem as if i was skirting the point no no of course and i'm happy that we agree and i should say you know mentions again the father it's important to remember that that atrocities by hamas didn't start yesterday um you know hamas's atrocities in the second intifada are helped derail peace, um, as did, of course, the killing of Rabin and this region. They, they, and, derailed, know, they derailed the Israeli left, I would say. I think that... Exactly, yeah, they derailed and destroyed. And, you know, this region's sad history is that this region is full of peace-seeking leaders who were killed because they sought peace. Ishaq Rabin, Anwar Sadat, you know, Abdullah, uh, first the King of Jordan, um, Sartawi, one of the leaders of PLO, so many people who wanted peace and represent the peace demands of millions of these people gave their lives um, to the extremists. Um, so I think that's that's a good guy to have, um, of to, to, to have the sort of political and moral courage um, for the path of peace um, and sidelining the, the, the extremists um, as, hard as, um, as hard as it can be. Okay, can I tell you one last thing before you go? Of course, and this is this is something that I think you also intuitively understand, given some of your uh, uh, tweets uh, and comments on this issue, because I think you understand the Israeli psychology better than I'd say <laughs> half, if not most, of American Jews. But the the well, um, we are we are we are unlike the Americans. I'm actually from the Middle East, so <laughs> right. No, no, exactly. No, I think I think that's like I said, like same for me. You can't take the Middle East out of the out of the man. But the the reason that I think that the, the, the my my issue with the ceasefire discourses, which is not the question with the ceasefire, because I, I I want a ceasefire. I want I want to protect civilian lives, and I and I and I kind of. I'm convinced by your point that there is no better resolu- solution that we can necessarily achieve militarily. Um, not fully convinced, but I, I'm, I'm very open to that point. My issue with the um, ceasefire discourse goes to something that I think we m- broadly agree on, which is the performative nature of American left discourse and sometimes the way that it can give cover to 
I like more radical anti-Israel Islamism under the cover of pseudo desire for peace. And um, sometimes that's done naively, sometimes that's done n- nefariously. But Israel is at this point, the Israeli public that I think is at a really precarious but interesting place where they see the failure of the right. And I've heard many people say that in the same way that the Second Intifada killed the Israeli left, October 7th may have dealt a deadly blow to the Israeli right. So the possibility of Israelis to wake up from the bluster of Ben-Gvir and Netanyahu and their their, you know, chest thumping about being the the czars of security and realizing how pathetically dangerous and demagogic they have been, that they have led the country down the path of destruction, creates a window for Israelis to take your call for long-term thinking, to embrace long-term thinking, and to understand that Israel needs to be responsible for its crimes in the West Bank and for the conditions in Gaza. There is a window for this, and I think it's real. But I think that as long as the international left embraces or spends time arguing even about whether or not from the river to the sea is genocidal or not, or what what does ceasefire mean, or even make the case for a a one-state solution, what the Israeli public hears is, well, maybe the world, maybe the world is just okay with the atrocities. No, but I think you're absolutely right. I think I think the biggest gift to the Israeli right has been the international left <laughs> and the anti-Israel position international left. You know, if I was theoretician of Israeli right, I would funnel money to all this sort of anti-Israel <laughs> groups around the world. They prove its point. Um, you know, they prove its point. They prove its point that Israelis have nowhere to go, that they're isolated. If you're a young Israeli with a bit of inclinations to the left, let's say, like, like normal people everywhere, if you come to an average American campus and you see the kind of thing that exists against Israel, um, you, you're very likely to turn right. Um, and I think, so I definitely agree with you, with you there. But, you know, the international left doesn't have good foreign relations, for sure, right? Um, as we've seen Russia and Ukraine uh, generally. But it also has very little political power. Um, I would say the part that matters, if you look at sort of, of course, Bernie Sanders and sort of foreign policy thinkers in the U.S., like Matt Doss and others. I mean, you know, they've been much more... Um, uh, reasonable on, on Israel and on other points. Um, you know, they, they don't have that anti-Israel obsession that many others have. Um, and, uh, you know, so so there is hope there. There is hope for a democratic left um, uh, that, that has reasonable policies and also uh, sort of abandons this rather silly anti-Israel um, obsession uh, that, is, that is current everywhere. But I agree with you that that it has really been destructive uh, for the region. And unfortunately, um, I think the unfortunate fact is that the um, the pro-Palestine movement has, you know, or sections of it that are the loudest, has banked itself on this. Um, but it's not in the ultimate interest of Palestinians either. Uh, the Palestinian national movement, pro-Palestinian movement, it's, understand, its real allies are Israeli progressives in, in Haifa and Tel Aviv and Netanya, because they are the ones he has to actually live with and deal with. You know, you can have, you know, six very radical people in, in Brooklyn who, you know, they'll say anything you want them to say. It doesn't change anything in their lives. It doesn't even change the flavor of the coffee they're going to drink the day after. So, of course, they'll take any radical positions you want um, because it doesn't affect anything for them. Politics is about the stakes. Um, and the real allies are not on the 
campuses in the U.S. and, and, and Germany. Their real allies are people in the region and people in the Arab countries, actually, working toward a, a solution um, that is practical for them in this generation. And, and, you know, the thing, the other thing about war and ceasefire and the stuff that we talk about, you know, it's not an abstraction. I mean, you know, you're an Israeli, I'm Iranian. If this war continues, it's us who will have to go and fight and die. You know, it's not like some other people who will do it, uh, right? Um, when these bombs comes, it's our families who will have to die. Um, you know, again, unlike some other people who don't have an actual skin in the game. Um, and that's why I think that's the sort of a spirit of the peace. And unfortunately, you know, we live in a time where when you, when you say these things, you're supposed to be, oh, you're just in the middle or you don't want to say anything or you don't want to commit to anything. Um, you know, I would say, yes, I do want, uh, you know, I do want peace um, because I want me and my friends to be able to live and to live normal lives. Um, you know, not ones of, of, of death and war. I mean, I think it's definitely possible and, and we should work for it. Well, thank Arash. you, Arash. Thanks so much. <laughs> this was great. I was, I really enjoyed listening thank to you Thank you so much, too. Vanessa. Thank you. I hope we didn't bore you at all, but <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you.